This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good Tuesday afternoon. Welcome to On Target, not Linda Swain at your service today. Jerry Lynn Mackey here. I'm just taking over today, big time. Thank you for joining me. Well, I do have a show planned for you today that really talks a lot about women's issues. We're going to begin with, well, there's been a lot of recent news about the backsliding of Roe versus Wade. And while it is an issue that is taking place in the United States, there are also impacts in this country as well, women right across Canada. Canada. Many women don't really have access to reproductive health services. On that issue, I spoke with Andrea Gunraj, Vice President of Public Engagement at the Women's Foundation, the Canadian Women's Foundation. I started out by asking her, you know, how is the reopening or the reopening of the discussion around Roe versus Wade abortion rights in the United States, how is that impacting us here in Canada? So many ways we have uh, a need to pursue reproductive justice in Canada. And for us, it's really important to think about reproductive justice under the lens of achieving gender justice in Canada. You can't have one without the other. And it's really important for people not only to have access to all the choices, um, but also to be able to have freedom to find that choice, to make it, to be supported, whatever choices they make about their health. Um, And I think one of the things that, you know, we might forget in Canada is while we do have laws in place, we have the Health Act, we have the Charter, that um, on paper does say that you have to have access to all the basic health needs and supports. We have an access issue in Canada, and that access issue can be really serious depending on where you are. I know in eastern Canada, um, access to things like abortion and um, just reproductive health services can be very limited depending on where you're living and depending on your ability to get to those services. Other parts of the country, absolutely. So think about northern, rural, remote areas. So that access piece becomes just functionally a barrier to people accessing their rights. And that's something that we really have to address in this country, even if the rights might be there on paper when it comes to actually fulfilling them, there are barriers. But with respect to, you know, the conversation that's being reopened in the States, does this threaten our laws here in Canada? Well, you know, there are a lot of questions about that. I think in Canada, there's a different context. And certainly um, organizations like Action Canada always talk about us having to be very vigilant about making sure that these rights stay in place. But again, that issue about rights, versus access, it becomes a question because things can stay the same on paper. It might be very difficult in Canada, depending on what's going on politically, to change those rights. They are in the Charter, they are in the Health Act. But we also know that things like funding for services for women is always one of those things that goes up and down. And we know that reproductive health services has never been fully funded in Canada the way that it should be. And also I think about things like um, sexual and reproductive just education in schools is wildly different depending on where you are in the country. There's no consistent curriculum about this, and there's no consistent sense that this is something that young people have to learn. And we know that our history has never been, um, you know, the way it needed to be. It's been always body. We think about marginalized women with low incomes. We think about women who have experienced forced sterilization and, and forced contraception, Indigenous and women with disabilities, 
the the idea of reproductive health and access has always been a bit of a contested ground. It has been something that's always been uneven, and it's something that is even again always something that could be on the books, but not necessarily accessible. And I think that's where we're we're looking at in Canada. Um, you know, the the backsliding of rights happening in the states um, may not look the same way here, but if functionally you can't access reproductive health services, do you have access to your rights? No. I think I understand what you mean. And the more the conversation builds with our neighbors, perhaps, you know, things like access will sort of erode a little. But how difficult is it for some women to have access? Well, I think, you know, there's lots of things that can get in the way. What about things like being able to access an abortion? You have to travel very far in some cases. In some cases, you might have to go to another province or another territory. And this is a time-sensitive procedure um, that can be a huge barrier for people, depending on where they live and also their access to transportation. In some parts of the country, transportation is a huge barrier. There isn't public transportation. We've just, you know, was was it this year or last year? Um, we got uh, huge lines cut because of bus services. Um, so again, that functional barrier that that comes into play in a big country like Canada, with lots of services that might be concentrated in some areas but disparate in other areas, that is a huge barrier to people's access. I also think about people having barriers to access in terms of just being able to get the support they need. So for somebody with a disability, being able to go to a clinic can be really difficult. And will that clinic have the services to support you in the way that you get around the world? Not necessarily. So I think the the lesson we have to take in Canada is not just worrying about rights on paper. We have to think about the access that's available. Are we funding these services to the degree that they need to be funding? Are we making sure that people are able to get to the services that are there? Are there more? I think it has to be a conversation of growing access and growing rights as opposed to just being satisfied where things are or even allowing shrinkage to happen, even in terms of just straight up not having the funding available for these services. Yeah, I can tell that you're really looking at the big picture here. What groups or demographics are more impacted than others? Well, I think some some folks have been saying so clearly and powerfully in the U.S. that this is really um, a hit against people who are poor. These are a hit against people who have no or low income, who may have so many barriers to just getting the things they need on a day-to-day basis. It is a financial Um, a hit against people who just can't pay for these services. In Canada, of course, it's different because we do have some funded services when it comes to health. But health has always been something that is difficult for people with low income. Um, Being able to access services has always been something that's difficult. If you don't have the resources to get there, and if you don't have the resources to be able to even take time off of work, um, to be able to um, afford public transit, to be able to just heal after, you know, um, a procedure. And I think that that then holds true here, that for people who have low incomes, that's going to be a, a big difficulty for them. And we know who tends to have lower incomes in Canada. Often it's women, often it's single parents uh, who have dependents and that's often women. It's often uh, racialized women, uh, women who are Indigenous. These are women who 
uh, just don't have access to the same job opportunities and economic opportunities, women with disabilities also. So it, it becomes a huge group when you look at it from that lens. In what way is it a basic right to have access to proper services like abortion? Well, you know, I think this is the kind of conversation that we have to look at in terms of health. Do people have access to the health services that are going to allow them to live, to not just live, but to thrive? And reproductive health services is one of those things. And I think sometimes that we look at this in a different lens because it's, it's, you know, related to your personal values or to your political leanings. But reproductive health services, um, abortion access to birth control, access to just sexual health information, those are all part of the, the big matrix of health services that we have to have. And if we don't have them, you know that you're going to struggle, that you're going to have health implications and implications in your life that can reverberate over a lifetime and can even reverberate intergenerationally. So I think it's so important to look at it in that lens. It's part of the health services we all need as humans to live and thrive. And when we start asking those questions and splitting it apart and saying that, um, you know, women shouldn't have access to some things or other things, what we're doing is creating a barrier that's gendered. If we want gender equality, we have to take away barriers that are gendered. That's just the the plain truth of the matter. And I think that's where we have to bring the conversation back. Whatever our personal choices are, we have to remember that this is a health service and this is a basic right for everyone. If that's that in the law, are we going to make sure that it functionally happens day to day? That's the question for us. Andrea, I'm glad that you mentioned gender equality in this country because I did want to ask, you know, what's the importance of of having or getting, achieving a true reproductive justice in, in the path to gender equality? Well, you know, it, it's just one of those things that is part of gender equality and gender justice in Canada. And you can't really speak about reproductive health and rights and justice without speaking about the greater project of achieving a gender equal Canada. And it's an important part of that. Um, I think, you know, we look at these things sometimes as if, you know, people are not involved in them, but it's absolutely just people's well-being and day-to-day ability to function and live. And people's ability to function and live day-to-day, all genders, then impacts our communities, our families, our societies. And I think, you know, we look at it like it's a rights issue. Of course, it's a rights issue. But I also look at it as just human thriving and a smart issue. So if we want to get a better economy, if we want to get out of this pandemic and be stronger than we were before, we do have to look at gender justice and we do have to look at that that lens underneath that, that is reproductive health and rights. Um, I think, you know, in in the pandemic context that we're still living in, we've seen so many gendered outcomes. We've seen so many gendered um, repercussions. And so many people are talking about what it means to build back better. It means building access. It means building rights. It means building people's functional ability to live. And that is absolutely part of gender justice. So gender justice becomes just a very pragmatic, smart thing that we can do in this country to make sure that we all thrive. Because when women are doing well, everybody does well. If people want to learn more about what they can do, of course, they can go to our website, CanadianWomen.org. You can also go to Action Canada for Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights. They have some incredible resources and some practical tips about what you can do if you care about increasing access and rights when it comes to gender justice and when it comes to reproductive justice. 
And that is Andrea Gunraj, Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. And she and I were talking a lot about reproductive access and rights in this country. When we come back, we're going to hear from Peg Norman. She is uh, one of those people who's been an advocate for a very long time, and she's been on the ground floor of reproductive rights here in this province. Stay with me on your VOCM. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Good Tuesday afternoon. Welcome back. Jerry Lynn Mackey with you today instead of the radio queen, Linda Swain. And today's edition of On Target, we're talking a lot about women's rights and women in general and even violence against women. Now, we'll get to that in the second half of the program. But continuing the conversation of abortion in Canada and the Roe versus Wade decision in the United States and how, you know, it's kind of it's been up for discussion once again. It's some people say it's backsliding rights of women in this country. I reached out to Peg Norman. Now, she is a resident of St. John's, and she came to Newfoundland and Labrador many years ago as an advocate for abortion, and she was the manager at the Morgan Toller Clinic here. I started by asking her, you know, what's her reaction to this whole argument being opened up again in the United States? In equal parts, shock and not surprised. Um, you know, the anti-choice movement in the U.S. has been very, very active and very vocal for a long, long time. Um, and uh, they've become more and more organized, more and more vigilant, more and more crazy. And um, the fact that the Supreme Court in the U.S. had agreed at the, to, to hear this particular case was a signal um, that it was quite likely that uh, Roe versus Wade was going to be uh, overturned. Not that it has been yet, but they're, uh, that's what they're heading towards. And uh, with, um, you know, I think the pro-choice movement in the U.S. is they are also very organized and very committed and very determined to, to continue to secure the right for women to have autonomy over their own persons. Um, and I, I foresee a pitched battle um, in the future in the U.S. I mean, that country is so divided on so many issues and the fact that we're that they're at that point now, with this potential overturning of um, of uh, Roe versus Wade, um, is I think just a symptom of the divisions within that country. You know, which was you know brought to a head with uh, the election of uh, Donald Trump, and it was his. Uh, you know, he he was the one that appointed. You know, continued to appoint. You know, ultra conservative right wing. Uh, judges and uh, this is this is what we're going to get what they're going to get because of it that's the fallout and I'd love to ask about your own involvement you know in the work you've done enabling Mm -hmm. abortions in this country well I spent you know I've been a a pro-choice advocate and activist for my entire life Um, and so you know my my involvement with the pro-choice movement began at a young age uh, working on, you know, continuing to make sure that abortion rights in Canada were secured and expanded. Uh, and then I had the good fortune when uh, Henry Morgenthaler came to St. John's and opened a clinic here to uh, be a volunteer at the get- at the outset, uh, helping to get that clinic up and running, and then had the good fortune to be employed. And, um, you know, one of, one of the things that I, proudest things that I've done in my life was um, getting uh, securing funding through MCP for women in Newfoundland and Labrador to have access to uh, safe uh, that safe medical procedure that is so life-saving for so many women. 
How disappointing is it to see that this is still up for debate? Well, how disappointing is it that we live in this world that who who would have thought in 2022 that we would see the potential overturning of a basic human right for women in the U.S. and we'd see war in uh, Europe? I mean, it, it's just like the and, and then after you know following two years of uh, of the pandemic, it's just been you know just on so many levels such a horrible uh, couple of years and it just doesn't seem to be uh, letting up at all and I, and i'm you know i try i try to be a, an optimist but in the face of this kind of uh, of reversals it's just uh, amazing and you know and the, and the sad thing is that they're not going to be banning abortion they're going to be banning safe abortions women who who have the means and the capacity will still have abortions they will still terminate a pregnancy if they don't want to be pregnant it's the poor women it's the women particularly in the u.s there's such still systemic racism and and uh, and uh, classism and so it's poor women it's women of color that are going to be impacted the most and uh, it's just a sad day it's a sad day for americans and it's a sad day for uh, women worldwide. And, you know, we still have to, you know, we look at the history of, of abortion rights around the world. You know, it's been a slow, slow slog of gaining rights. But you know, I have to remember that the U.S. was at the forefront uh, of securing uh, rights for women to be able to control their own reproductive uh, uh, bodies. But the, the around the world, in many countries, it's still criminal or not available at all. And women are still dying by having unsafe, illegal abortions. I mean, how concerned are you that this mentality that's we're seeing unfolding in the United States could spread to Canada? Well, it's always a fear. Of course, when you see a dominant culture like that making such a significant or attempting to make such a significant systemic change, that it'll have a trickle-down effect. But I think here we have a completely different uh, governance, system of governance, um, and we're, you know, our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is very, it's a very different document, and the way that it's implemented is very different. So I, I and I think, you know, even in the U.S., I mean, the vast majority of people, if uh, in poll after poll after poll, uh, support a woman's right to choose, and that's true here in Canada as well. Um, and I, you know, I, I trust that we have. Um, you know, we have the structures in place that will continue to protect and expand the rights of every Canadian. Um, but there's always, you know, there's always that trickle-down effect. And we saw that just this past winter in uh, in Ottawa with, uh, you know, that same kind of ultra-right-wing, you know, uh, conservatism spilling over, you know, against uh, mandates around uh, COVID restrictions, you know. So, yeah, it's, you know, I I'll, I think... Young women need to know the history. Young women in this in this country need to know how we got where we are with rights around reproductive choice. And they need to know the history because they're the ones that are going to have to continue to be vigilant, to continue keeping their eye on the ball and making sure that the rights that we have that were so hard fought are not eroded in this country.
And that is my conversation with Peg Norman, St. John's resident and former manager for 10 years at the Morgenthaler Clinic, longtime advocate for reproductive rights in this country. My name's Jerry Lynn Mackey. When we come back, we're going to stay on the same street but switch lanes. We're still going to keep the conversation around women and, and even some public safety mixed in there now. I'll be joined by Marco Mendocino, Federal Minister of Public Safety, after these on your VOCM on Target. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Good Tuesday afternoon. Welcome back. My name's Jerry Lynn Mackey, filling in for the Radio Queen today on On Target. Linda Swain is off enjoying a nice break. Well, we are keeping our conversation to the topic of women today, but uh, the public safety minister federally now is visiting the province. That's Minister Marco Mendocino. He's been meeting with a lot of different community groups, including the Violence Prevention Avalon East and the St. John's Status of Women Center. Well, I reached out to the minister who is in St. John's today to ask him a little bit about what brings him to Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, very happy to be uh, back in Newfoundland and Labrador and specifically in St. John's in my capacity as Minister of Public Safety, where I've been uh, having uh, a number of meaningful conversations with uh, community leaders, specifically representing women's organizations uh, like the Women's Centre met with uh, Lisa Fay and others from crime prevention, uh, and uh, really to talk about how we can tackle together uh, gender-based violence, which has been uh, exacerbated by uh, the pandemic. And the federal government is is there to work in partnership with community organizations in a variety of ways. Uh, one, we want to make sure that there's uh, programming support uh, to uh, reduce and completely eliminate gender-based violence. Uh, but secondly, in my conversations this morning, we talked about a number of important reforms to law enforcement and how we're strengthening civilian oversight and improving training uh, and improving uh, the way in which uh, we provide public safety uh, to our communities right across the country. So it's been um, a very, very good visit and there's still uh, more work to be done. And I know that you're meeting or have you already met with Violence Prevention Avalon East? We have, uh, and just uh, came out of that meeting uh, this morning and was uh, incredibly struck by um, the, the personal stories, the lived experiences and the leadership uh, that is being shown by um, the women that lead Avalon East. And, you know, I have to tell you, um, I, I, it just motivates uh, me and uh, my colleagues, uh, Minister O'Regan and MP Thompson, with whom I uh, spent the morning with, uh, with them at, at, a, at a great round t- table. Uh, to do more work. And as I say, it is about providing, I think, tangible support to get at the root causes of gender-based violence. So making sure that there's access to affordable housing, uh, to health care, to mental health care, uh, to address uh, challenges around addiction and substance abuse, but equally to make sure that the relationship between uh, communities and specifically women and law enforcement is strengthened. Because we know that for far too long, Uh, There has been a toxic culture that has beset law enforcement, and we need to make sure that we're making the changes that are necessary. Just last week, I tabled new legislation that would establish a public complaints and review commission, a totally new independent body to make sure that there is the appropriate degree of civilian review so that we can have trust through accountability and transparency. And and that was work that we were able to unpack uh, with, uh, with those organizations this morning. 
Minister Mendocino, what are some of the biggest issues facing the country when it comes to public safety? Well, I think, um, you know, first we, we've just spoken about uh, the fact that gender-based violence has been increasing over the last number of years. And I think because of the pandemic, uh, more people were isolated, uh, leading to more conflict, more tension, uh, and, and tragically more violence. And I think that's certainly uh, an issue that we're hoping to make great headway and make, make progress on. And that's one of the main reasons for uh, my, my trip to St. John's. I think equally, um, we need to be sure that we're uh, protecting our communities from uh, some of the ideological uh, extremism that we're seeing play out online. We talked about online harm, and we've got legislation that we're bringing forward to deal with that. And sadly, uh, as a result of disinformation, uh, conspiracy theories that uh, can be driven by uh, racism, both systemic and direct, um, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, And it requires us to be uh, honest with one another, to be uh, level with one another, uh, and to really tackle these challenges together. And that begins by by calling it out. And and we we spoke about uh, this morning about the need to do that work together in partnership. So a lot of good work that's being done on the ground uh, by Avalon East, by the Women's Centre in St. John's, as I said, you know, meeting with Lisa Fay this morning. Uh, was very much uh, inspired by the work that, that she's leading and so many others. I know, for example, MP Thompson headed up the gathering place uh, in St. John's. and Just great work that's being done. Still a lot more to do. And when you mentioned that you met with St. John's Status of Women's Centre and Violence Prevention Avalon East, you know, what kind of things did you talk about to sort of get at the heart of basically annihilating or eliminating uh, gender-based violence? Well, we talked about what are the social determinants of gender-based violence. So, we, again, we talked about the need to get access to more affordable housing, more rapid housing, more transitional housing. We talked about the need uh, to provide wraparound services around health care, mental health care. We talked about the need to uh, make sure that there is a robust health professional uh, workforce that is uh, there to be uh, a- available to, to provide support uh, to women. Uh, and we talked about the need to collect data to ensure that the, the policies and the outcomes are being driven by the best available evidence and science and data. And, um, you know, just really uh, taking good note of, of what has worked and where we can improve uh, in terms of the programming support is uh, is one of the uh, the key takeaways from my conversations this morning. You know, in the federal budget that we just announced uh, about a month ago, uh, we've earmarked over $600 million to reduce and eliminate gender-based violence. Those are federal dollars, which I believe can be invested in the community here uh, in St. John's and right across the province of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, to great effect and impact. But we've got to do it in partnership with community leaders like the ones that I've met and were inspired by this morning. And that is my conversation with Federal Minister of Public Safety, Minister Marco Mendocino. We're going to keep it going here when we come back, though. I did have more questions for the minister about how he plans to address, I mean, specifically address the issues of gender-based violence and, well, really, citizen crime prevention and violence as a whole. I'll be back on On Target. 
on your VOCM. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Minister, what role can citizens play when it comes to crime and violence prevention? Well, um, I think a number of roles. Uh, first and foremost, by calling it out, uh, and especially when we're talking about, um, you know, some of the the fear mongering and some of the, you know, some of the 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 racism that we see that is that that is playing out. You know, we've we've seen it in in the recent uh, shooting in Buffalo, New York, a little more than a week ago, where we saw brutal murder of. Um, of, of, of African-Americans uh, simply because of, of the color of their skin and their race, um, you know, in the manifesto that was published by the killer. But, you know, this is not just a phenomenon uh, and a scourge that impacts the United States. We've seen it in our own country. We saw it in the Quebec City mosque shooting. Uh, we've seen it in other uh, mass shootings. And that's why it's really important that we call it out together as Canadians. You know, Canadians look after one another. We're inclusive. Um, you know, we, 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 we take care of our neighbors. Um, and, and that has to begin by treating one another with respect and with dignity. And so I think that's one thing that I think that we as citizens can do. But equally, I think going beyond just, you know, words moving into deeds, we can see people volunteer and step up. And that's something that I saw this morning in the conversations this morning. There's tremendous leadership at the community uh, level in the grassroots. Uh, to create those safe spaces so that people who are uh, disproportionately impacted by these social harms are able to get the support that they need. And Minister, I mean, I know that we've heard a lot about, and you've sort of mentioned this as well, about how women and caregivers in Canada were disproportionately impacted by, you know, the the pandemic in general, I guess. And would, would that visit right now that you're partaking in, in this province, you know, is that part of that? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And I think that, you know, the only way that we can begin to address overrepresentation of Indigenous peoples, of racialized Canadians, of frankly women, um, you know, who uh, have been uh, ha- have been on the on the harsh receiving end of, of violence in the workplace, in the homes, in the communities, uh, is to, uh, one, call it out, two, to make sure that we are uh, collecting uh, the data that is necessary and I think three, uh, by providing the the supports uh, that are necessary, and four, by making sure that we are moving forward uh, with the necessary changes to law enforcement so that there is that that bond of trust that needs to exist uh, at the community policing level. So a lot of really important work that needs to be done, and that is being advanced. And I know that there's been um, sort of strides made when it comes to, you know, authorities and groups that are associated with gender in this province. And then there's also been some breakdowns. So, you know, are, are you also here to sort of make sure that these community groups are communicating in, in the best way that they can? Absolutely. And uh, I think, again, I think there needs to be a um, um, candor uh, between law enforcement and the communities that they are charged with um, ensuring public safety over. Um, so that there is that level of trust and respect and integrity. And, um, you know, that is work that is fundamental to my mandate, and it's work that is important to our government. But we have to do that work in partnership with all levels of government. I'll be meeting with Premier Fury today as well to talk about this. I know, you know, he is very much in alignment um, 
and and united in this common cause, as uh, as are the meetings that I'll be taking with the head of the uh, the Royal uh, Newfoundland Constabulary, uh, as well as uh, the mayor here in St. John's. So it's important that we, you know, uh, are are very much united in this common cause. And when it comes to addressing this, and, and you did mention $6 million in federal funding to look at this, how do you see that shaking out in different communities in Newfoundland and Labrador? Well, my hope is that uh, these are not just dollar figures, that those dollar figures result in positive uh, change and outcomes through um, community programming and services, which are driven by the community itself. And uh, from where I sit, you know, that means uh, beginning uh, with the important step of listening uh, to the lived experiences uh, of women, of racialized uh, Canadians, of Indigenous peoples, uh, to make sure that we are addressing the problem at its root. And, and so by listening, we can then um, really take away that uh, input and build it into the policies and the services and the supports so that we are making meaningful change. Um, not just slapping a Band-Aid on, on a problem, but rather um, really um, restru- restructuring the way that we provide uh, public safety in our communities across the country. Minister, Minister Mendocino, you've been very gracious with your time. Just one more question. What else is on the agenda here in Newfoundland and Labrador, besides also meeting with the Premier? <laughs> well, we've had great meetings with community leaders. Uh, we've had meetings uh, with uh, government leaders. Um, you know, my uh, that is the main reason for this visit. But, you know, also just uh, taking a moment uh, to uh, to enjoy, um, you know, th- this part of the country. I absolutely love uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, it offers the best in, in, in nature uh, and in coastal living. And, um, you know, I'm going to try and uh, take a few moments to uh, stop and smell the roses and smell the ocean breeze. So that's, that's what's on the agenda. But always love to come out here.